0: All right, open your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 9, breaking from the book of Genesis for a few weeks. Uh, we like to do something of a Christmas series, and, and so we've started last week and calling it O Come. And so I love teaching through Christmas songs, Christmas carols, um, but I think we've done them all, and so, uh, so, so we, we need some new ones. Um as football season uh, begins to wind down, uh, we have a few South Carolina Gamecock fans. Any of those out there? A few. There you go. Yeah. My family. Um, we got a whole bunch of Florida Gator fans. Yeah. Yeah. All right. When the season started, we both had high expectations, like really high expectations like foolishly high expectations. Some actually thought that that, that they would steal a few wins and, and and get into the top four playoff. But I can tell you this, no gator or gamecock fan expected not even to get six wins and a bowl game. Speaking of expectations, where's all my Florida State fans? <laughs> I wish I could say I'm sorry, I just wouldn't be honest. Um, <laughs> FSU won literally every game. And so their expectation is higher than any of us. Uh, so, so Gator fans and Gamecock fans, were disappointed. Florida State fans are mad. I mean, they're undefeated. And then they were passed over for the playoffs by two one-loss teams. They had legitimate expectations, and those expectations were not met, and now they're mad. But unmet expectations aren't limited to FSU fans. Husbands and wives expect marital bliss, and their marriages go amiss. Parents expect kids who will honor them, and now these kids want nothing to do with them. And the truth is, as we get most angry and we get most anxious when our expectations go unmet. I mean, we expect green lights, parking spaces, job promotions. We expect tires that don't wear out or pop. We expect short lines. We expect drivers that drive at least as good as we do. We expect easy A's, nice houses, understanding spouses. We expect to live a life that's fair, and it's not. And so our biggest frustrations are, are not from the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Our biggest frustrations come from our unmet expectations. And so last week, we, we started our Christmas series, and Josh preached on the, the Christmas carol, Carol, Oh, Come All You Faithful. Well, today we're going to look at another Christmas carol, and and as I was preparing for it this week, I realized I preached this before, this carol. And, and I thought, oh, man, how, when was it? So it was four years ago. And, and at that point, I actually preached it from uh, the genealogy of Jesus uh, found in Matthew 1. And so um, I like preaching genealogies. You guys know that. Um, But we're not going to do that. We're going to actually preach it from Isaiah chapter 9. And so what's the Christmas carol? Well, if you haven't figured it out yet, it's come thou long-expected Jesus. That's why we're talking about expectations. Uh, It was written by Charles Wesley in 1744 um, after he had seen the horrors of slavery in America and the orphan problem that was in England. And so in his mind, the idea of, of getting rid of the weeping and the pain and, and the sin and the death and the sorrow, just, it just consumed him. And so when he wrote this, he did not write it as a song. He wrote it as a prayer. And, and so listen to this as a prayer. And, and, and maybe if you can, kind of get the familiarity of it out of your mind, but just listen to this as a prayer. Come thou long expected Jesus. Born to set thy people free from our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, Rule in all our hearts alone, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy, to thy glorious throne. It 's a beautiful prayer, isn't it? I mean, it turned it into a song, but it is a beautiful prayer, and it 's applicable to both the, the Old Testament and New Testament. it 's applicable to both the, the first coming of Christ uh, and the second coming of Christ. The Old Testament saints, they longed for a Messiah who would free them. And and we wait for a Messiah to come again and to free us. And the the expected coming of the Messiah, that was was the message of Israel. You you read back through your Old Testament. I love how, how our men's group right now, we're just going to do an Old Testament survey, going through our Old Testament books one after another. And what we're saying is, let's just find Christ in there and he's just littered throughout the scriptures. Moses and the prophets, what do they speak of? The Messiah's first coming. You get to the New Testament and, and you see his first coming revealed to us and, and then his second coming is, is predicted for us. And we've taken that at CBC and so every week we, we, we speak of, of the gospel of his sacrificial first coming. And every week we look forward to knowing that one day this will all be over. He's coming again and, and he will free us and he will release us from our sins and we'll find our rest in him. And so not only is he Israel's strength and consolation, their, their comfort, he's, he's ours as well. He's coming to redeem us. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he's going to bring the hope of salvation to every longing heart. And so when, when Wesley writes of this, he's, he's writing of a Jewish deliverer who was, who was born a king, but nobody's born a king. You may be born a prince, but you're not born a king. A prince will once, one day be king, but you're not born a king unless you're Jesus. And as king, he reigns in us. I mean, where's the privilege we have to be called brothers and sisters, friends? I and mean, ultimately, we really do want him to rule in our hearts, because the only other option then is for us to rule in our own hearts, and that's never a good. <laughs> so it's been over 270 years since Wesley wrote this song, and it is so applicable today. Now, for our pastoral prayer, I read this text because it just was so applicable uh, for, for this, this sermon Um, to set it up. But I want to read it again. Okay, so Isaiah 9, I hope you found it, 1 through 7. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in 2 to 6. He says, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, and they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of the, on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors at as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will not will not will be for burning fuel, for burning fuel for for the fire. Now, Isaiah has been speaking of a, of a coming deliverer who's going to lead Israel into joy and, and prosperity. And, and it's been lacking, this kind of prosperity, for years. Well, you always want to ask the question, why are they lacking it? Well, they're lacking it. The same reason Israel always lacks it is because they were in rebellion against God. And, and, and Isaiah is saying that the, the coming of the Messiah is going to change Israel. And he's going to fulfill his promises uh, the promises to Abraham, the promises to David. We've been talking about the promises to Abraham for the last year or plus in the book of Genesis. And that child will be born is, is not a sign of the deliverer. He's saying the child is actually the deliverer. He's the one that's going to make the, nas- the necessary changes so that the nation will prosper. Is it any wonder then when Picture yourself as Israel, all this prosperity talk, all this kingdom talk, all this ruling talk. You can see what their expectations were and we get most disappointed, we get most angry and most anxious when we have unmet expectations. And so they're expecting a ruler. And so they were so disappointed when Jesus would talk about dying. Their expectation is that they're going to get a king who will deliver them from Rome. They did not expect that they would get a savior that would deliver them from their sin. They thought Rome was the problem. And the condition of Israel in Jesus' time, or I sorry, in Isaiah's time, is similar to how it was in Jesus' time. By the way, it's similar to how it is in our time. And because of how they worshiped, their worship was meaningless. And so, listen, they were in God's temple. But they were committing injustice around the world. They had turned their backs on God. And Isaiah's hope is is for God's chosen people to return to him. That's our hope, right? Before we jump into chapter 9, and and you guys know me well enough, I hate one-and-done sermons. I do. I can't stand them. Because it, it, it... There's so much context that you miss out on when you just jump into Isaiah nine, right? And so I was trying to think of what's a good passage that will summarize what was going on in Israel during Isaiah's time. And Isaiah one really covers it well. Listen to Isaiah one beginning in verse 10, should be on the screen. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah, now listen. Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed centuries before this. And so what he's saying is, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of perverse generation. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people who are involved in immorality. And then he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord. Now, listen, when you're in this text, I hate one and done sermons. There's so much more that can be said. You're in this text and... And what you're gonna see is they were doing what God said to do, right? They had the right practice. They didn't have the right heart, okay? So they would be in church on a Sunday morning. They, maybe they're serving up here. Maybe they're greeting, maybe they're preaching, okay? They're doing the right things, they're just doing it with the wrong heart. And so he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. All these he had commanded, right? So when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath... The calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Listen, God commanded those festivals. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Well, that's scathing, isn't it? So what do I do? Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Here's the good news. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, that's a sobering text, isn't it? Israel is a nation who is performing the right religious duties, but they're doing it with the wrong religious heart. And, and their expectation is that if, if they did religious things, In the religious way, then God had no choice but to bless them. Now look what Jesus said about this group. Matthew 15, verse 7. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. And so Jesus is quoting directly from the book of Isaiah. He's saying they, they say the right things, right? They're, they're even doing the right things, but their heart isn't right with God. And so, because their heart's not right with God, doing the right things matters none, right? He says, your, your worship is in vain. And what does God say? I'm sick of it. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you pray, I'm not listening. So when you keep praying over and over and over and over, he's like, still not listening. Your offerings are worthless, he says. Your festivals that I commanded to you, they've now become a burden to me. And you're probably sitting there thinking, gee, Mike, Merry Christmas to you too. (laughs) Listen, what's the point? Their darkness is our Darkness. And if their darkness is our darkness, then their hope is our hope. It's the message of Jesus. It's come, thou long-expected Jesus. So you you read Isaiah, and it's just judgment and condemnation, and then a little bit of hope. And so now we're in the hope part. First seven verses of Isaiah 9 really switches the narrative to hope and expectation for their future as the children of God. And so if you're taking notes this morning, point number one is there is a coming peace. A coming peace. And so Isaiah reintroduces the Messiah. This is the one he says is going to transform the gloom and despair of war into the joy and, and peace of a time of righteousness. Look at verse 1. He says, there will be no more gloom for who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now there's a a word in verse 9 that is really important to understanding the rest of this text. And it's it's the first word in verse 9. What's the first word? But. Remember, whenever you see a but, you got to look up. What what did it say before that? If if the but is going to make sense, we have to look at the verses above. So just look two verses above. Isaiah 8, verse 21 They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. Okay, so what we see here, there's consequences, right? They're famished, they're hard-pressed. Why are they hard-pressed and famished? Well, because they're not obeying God. Because if they obey God, God blesses them. And if they disobey God, then God curses them. So they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Now think about this. They're famished because their sin has removed God's hand of blessing on them. So, so they get hungry, and who do they blame? Well, they, they, they curse the king, and they blame God. And, and so if you get rid of the king the political parties, right, and your hope in the political parties is, by the way, that shouldn't be our hope, right? Hope in political parties is gone. Hope in God is now gone. So when they get hungry, what do they do? They look to the earth. They turn to the earth. Have have you ever wondered why those who look to the earth for salvation are so angry? That's what you see in Isaiah 8. So what's going on in our world is nothing new. And it seems that most angry people are those who blame the government leaders and those who curse God because they're not getting something that they think that they're entitled to get. So in verse 1, it says, God humbled Zebulun and Naphtali, and it says, for a while. And just because of time, we didn't have to go, go, weren't able to go into it. But Matthew 4 quotes from here, and it, it shouldn't surprise you then that Jesus began his ministry where Zebulun and Naphtali cursed for a little while, right, and gloom for a little while, and Shouldn't surprise you as well that when Israel was under Gentile rule, that, that area was called Galilee of the Gentiles. Right? From Isaiah. There's no filler in scripture. Look at verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And so you can get the picture of Israel. I hope I painted that picture that, that Israel at this point in their history was dark, it was scary, it was lonely. And the idea, when he talks about walking in darkness, is it's imagery of what it means to walk in sin. When you're walking in sin, living in sin, and habitual sin, you're walking in darkness. And so these are the words he uses. And I'm sure you've felt it that spiritual issues affect us physically as well. Their their spiritual problem is that they're walking in sin. And because they're walking in sin, the the fruit of walking in sin is fear. So now they've got this physical fear. Why? Because ultimately because they're dwelling in darkness. And so Israel's greatest need is to be erased from their fears and sins, which is spelled out in our Christmas carol. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From what? From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our hope, our rest in thee. And so a coming peace means, A, here, an end to despair. An end to despair. Who's the promise of verse 2? Jesus is. Okay, this is what Matthew quotes right here. Jesus himself, he declared himself to be the light of the world and In the second of his seven I am statements, where he was declaring himself to be God. Look at John 8, verse 12. He says, then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does it mean to walk in darkness? You're not going to walk in sin. If you follow Christ, you're not walking in sin. And so in Isaiah's day, the people were walking in darkness, and they're waiting on the light. And then then you get to John's day, and they're walking in darkness, and they miss the light. Look at John 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. And so while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. So in our case, we're saved in, in New Testament times. The vast majority of Israel has, has missed Jesus, even though Jesus was right there. So what God does, does is he puts a hold on them just for a while. And now where is Jesus shining? On us, on the Gentiles. And I would reiterate what Jesus said is, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Paul would say, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. The psalmist, I like what he says. He says, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Not put your hope in government. Not put your hope in political leaders. Not put your hope in the king. Not put your hope in earth. He says, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Find your rest in him. And when you put your hope in God, then you get an end to despair. Point B is there's a future joy. So not only is there an end to despair, there's a future joy that awaits. Look at verse 3. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. I like where he says, you've increased their gladness. Wesley would say, this is the joy of every longing heart. Right? This is harvest talk. You know, why does he use harvest talk? Well, we've got a couple farmers in here, and, and farmers know that harvest time is work time. Harvest time is stay up late and wake up early time. And in between the, the early morning and the late nights, it's just work, work, work time. My, 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 one of my grandsons, he, he, uh, I, I always, I'd say, listen, before we do that, we got to clean up here. Or before we do this, let's finish this project over here. And, and he was complaining to Sherry one day. He says, wook, wook, wook. That's all pops wants me to do is walk, wook, wook. <laughs> it's harvest time. It's time to work, right? Look at verse four. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders the rod of their oppressors at the battle of Midian. And so joy comes when you're, when you're free from bondage, when you're free from oppression. And, and Isaiah, what he does, and again, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but man, this would have been huge for them, is, is he he takes this freedom and, and he equates it with the battle of Midian. Now most of us, you say the battle of Midian, you're going, okay, what's the big deal with that? The Jews, though, they would have heard Battle of Midian, oh. Oh, you're comparing this with the battle of Oh, that's, that's a big deal. Well, what's Midian? Well, Midian is where the story of Gideon takes place. So it's easy to remember, Midian and Gideon, right? The Midianites had been stealing Israel's crops for, for seven years. They had occupied their land during the harvest and, and they just took whatever they wanted. And in Israel's case, they were powerless to stop them. And, and so God steps in and he tells Gideon that he's gonna use him, he's gonna use Gideon, to save them from the Midianites. So Gideon does what all of us would do is he forms the biggest army he can possibly form, 10,000 men. And God's like, that's too much. Eventually, he trims it down to 300 men. I mean, you go from 10,000 to 300. And the point that that God was making is, is that you're gonna win but I don't want anybody to think that you won because of your own strength. Everybody's going to know you won because of me. And so the joy of the harvest, as as on the day of Midian, that's the joy that's brought about by God rescuing them uh, from an impossible situation. And so they have this rescue, and now they have a a new joy and a new hope and a new mindset and a new perspective on life. Look at verse 5, for every boot of the... Booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. And I'm reading this, I'm thinking, what does this have to do with this? And, and, and the imagery is to tell the readers that there's an end to this war coming. There's an end where you're no longer going to be under oppression. All those elements of warfare, the boots, right, the swords, the shield, all of that stuff. It's going to be burned up. It's going to be destroyed. There's going to be no need for it anymore. Verse six, four. Okay, huge word there. Four, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. But that word, four. Why will there be no more? Burn, why will there be no more need for boots? Why will there be no more need for all these things? Right, four. Because, since, why will there be joy like in the day of Midian? Why will we be free from oppressors? Why will our burden be gone? Why will there be no more need for war? Because a child will be born to us. There's no need for those things because a son will be given. And so this verse begins to describe what the Messiah is going to be like. And Isaiah has already described him a couple chapters before. Right? You know the verse, Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God, the second member of the Trinity, literally with us. He will literally leave the glory of heaven and be incarnated into the womb of a virgin named Mary. Which brings us to point number two. There's a coming Messiah. That's the four. And the words he uses in verse 6, again, they're very familiar, but I thought it'd be good. We just need to go through them. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. But the imagery really starts where he left off in 714. That child will be born and a son will be given from a virgin. And he will be literally God with us. These are the signs. This is how you know it's him. First, A, point A, is he is the wonderful counselor. You can actually take that and break that into two. He's wonderful. Okay, that, that word wonderful literally means incomprehensible. He's beyond understanding. You can say he's going to be full of wonder. He, he's a, he, Jesus is a, Jesus is is wonderful in a way that boggles your mind. In fact, they use that word wonderful, or that same word wonderful, when in Judges 13, Samson's uh, father asked the Lord what his name was. And he responded, Why do you ask my name since it's beyond your understanding? Why would you ask that? You can't even fathom how good I am. Jesus is more wonderful than you can grasp. I mean, how wonderful, how beyond explaining was his incarnation. How incomprehensibly wonderful was his power to heal, to live a sinless life, to teach the way he taught and to resurrect from death. He, he's not just wonderful though, he's the wonderful counselor. And in ancient Israel, when you, a counselor was, was somebody who you would portray as a, a really wise king. And so this wonderful counselor, this Jesus, he's the ultimate wonderful counselor because he knew what was in each person. And so because he knew what was in each person, he was able to advise his people because he's qualified in ways that no human being can be. I know oftentimes I'll sit in counseling and, and, and there'll be situations that come up and I'll think, I have no idea what to say. Really, I, no idea. And, I, and, and I, my default is, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. Can we just pray? Because I'm not really sure how to respond. He never had to say that. He always knows what we're going through. He always knows the right course of action to take. And as a wonderful counselor, we can trust him to, to listen to our problems. We can trust him to guide us in the right direction. We can be certain that he has our best interest at heart. Why? Because he loves us. And this love is so wonderful, so incomprehensible that we can't fully understand it. But not only is he the wonderful counselor, he's also mighty God, point B. We could literally spend the whole sermon on this one point. Because the question is this, is, is Jesus the eternal God who has no beginning and no end, or did he at some point become God? Now, now people will argue that Jesus never claimed to be God. Listen, nothing can be further from the truth. And again, we could literally spend hours and hours and hours on this one little thing. I would just encourage you, go back. Listen, we did a series called I Am. Seven I Am statements from the book of John. I thought I'd just give you one passage here. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. Now think about that. He gives it, it's free. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And, and so the cults will come to your door and they're gonna say, Jesus wasn't claiming equality with God. He was saying that that he was not saying that that me being one with the Father, it means that we're equal in essence. They would say that, that Jesus making a claim that they're equal in purpose. And they'll say, Well, let me just give you an example of that. They'll say, Well, think about your marriage. The Bible says that you become one flesh. But obviously, you're not one physical flesh. Look, there's two of you. He's saying you're, you're one in purpose. You both want good kids, you both want secure finances. You both want a healthy marriage. But is that what Jesus was saying? Was he saying that he and the Father are one in purpose? They both want to see people saved. They both want a nice, calm earth. They both want peace. Is that what he's saying? That they're one in purpose, but not one in essence? Now, the cults will tell you he was not making a claim to be one with God. So what do you do? And I don't really know what the next answer is. I don't know how to combat that. Because what they're going to do is they're going to all of a sudden flip to another verse. You know what Jesus said? Keep reading. Just keep reading. Look at John 10, beginning in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be what? God. In essence. They weren't trying to stone him because he claimed to be one in purpose with the Father. They tried to stone him because he claimed to be one in essence. He is not a God. He's mighty God. He did the things that only mighty God could do. He could defy the laws of nature by stilling a storm. He could walk on water. He could make blind eyes see. He could make lame men walk. Why? Because he is God. He's Emmanuel. He's God who came then with us point C he is the eternal father now many of you guys would look at this and go "Oh, hold on a second is he the son or is he the father listen this is not in relation to the Godhead this is in relation to his character he's fatherly to us as father he's a protector he's a caretaker he's a provider he's a comforter We could also take it in a political sense. George Washington is considered the father of our nation. Jesus is the father of the nation of Israel. I actually think eternal father is probably not the best translation. I think everlasting father is. It carries the idea of perpetuity. It carries the idea of without end. The everlasting father, this title really speaks of assurance of our salvation. John 1, verse 12, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to or equal to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. So in this verse, it actually says that those who have been born again, you become children of God. If you become something, you weren't it before. All of us are his creation, but only some are his children. And so if you've been born again, you have a new father. Charles Spurgeon said, there is no unfathering Christ and there is no unchilding us. He is the everlasting father to those who trust him. Point D, he is also the prince of peace. Now it's no surprise to you that we live in a world of wars and rumors of wars. I saw a little thing yesterday, just in the month of December, all that's happened in December. It's crazy. I mean, there are protests around the globe for peace, but I'm just gonna remind you that peace is more than the absence of conflict. Real peace is only found in the Prince of Peace. He's the one that brought peace with God through redemption. By his death, by his resurrection, and eventually he will bring complete peace when he comes to rule and reign. And until then, we sing, Come thou long-expected Jesus. So how do we apply this? Three things. Be aware of the darkness, number one. Be aware of the darkness. When I say be aware, I'm not saying be in fear of. Be aware of the darkness. Don't be in fear of the darkness. Like Israel, we live in a world of darkness. And I, I just, it's unfathomable where we are as a world. Did, did anyone think that they would live in a time when masses of people would call for the extermination of a people group and that be debated? I mean, the world not the whole world, you understand what I say, calling for the annihilation of a people group. If you just put that on any people group, I cannot imagine. And there is a large segment of the world's population that is pushing for the death of every Jew and mercy for the terrorist organization Hamas. And I'm thinking, how do we get there? And Caleb Colucci said this the other day in the office, I said, can I use that? He said, it's almost as ridiculous as screaming for Barabbas' salvation and crucify Jesus. Imagine that, Barabbas, this well-known criminal. Matthew 27, look at verse 21. The governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. Can you imagine? And this would be like saying in our day, well, who should I release? Charles Manson or Jesus? Ted Bundy or Jesus? Bin Laden or Jesus? Jack the Ripper or Jesus? Known criminal or Jesus? And what do they say? Release Barabbas. Did you ever think that we'd be where we are? And I know, and here's what Christians do. We go to extremes, right? You got one side who says, I'm just going to bury my head in the sand. I'm not going to watch any kind of news. I'm not going to read anything. I don't want to know. You got the other side that they've got every conspiracy theory in the world, right? And they live by it. Listen, you know the problem with conspiracy theories? Some of them are true. And the ones that are true give momentum to the others that aren't. But that's the typical side that that Christians take. We go to the extremes. In 1 Chronicles, it speaks about the men of Issachar. And it says the men of Issachar knew the signs of the times. And since they knew the signs of the times, they had knowledge on what they should do. What should we do? Be aware... Don't be in fear, but be aware. Well, how can I be aware and not in fear? Well, because you have a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an eternal father, a prince of peace. Number two, be at work in the darkness. Be at work in the darkness. I love the close of this song where he says, by thine all sufficient merit. It's not, better watch out, better not cry, better not pout, I'm telling you why. (laughs) Christmas isn't about being good. God's not gonna judge you based on like your your good and bad days, right? By the way, the last thing you'd want God to do is judge you on your good or bad days because all of us fall short. God will judge you based on what you did with Jesus. The reason he left heaven and became a man is because you can't be good enough. And so he was good for us, he was our substitute. And so our work in the darkness is to tell this good news to everybody who will listen. And then point number three, expect the light, be expecting the light. That's how we started, right, expectations. Get most angry, most anxious when our expectations go unfulfilled. And there's one expectation that I know for sure, he's coming back. I don't know when, but I know he's coming back. His birth was predicted and it was fulfilled. His death was predicted and it was fulfilled. His resurrection was predicted and it was fulfilled. And his return has been predicted and we're waiting for that fulfillment. And so until then, we long for that day when he will come. And we would say, come that long-expected Jesus. Father, thank you for this passage in Isaiah. What a treasure it is. And just a cursory look at it really doesn't do it justice. And yet the message is so simple. As those who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And so that's our prayer. We recognize that we live in a very dark world. That There are some in here this morning who have this darkness in their heart. They've never actually been saved. They've never trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. And so, Father, I pray for them. I pray that today would be their salvation. Today, if they would hear his voice, that they wouldn't harden their hearts that they would trust in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ as full payment for their sins. And for the rest of us, God, I pray that this would be the message of our season, that you left heaven, that you incarnated yourself into the womb of a virgin, that you lived the life that we could not live and then you died the death that all of us deserved and proof that you were who you say you are that three days after death, you rose again, accomplishing for us what we could not accomplish. Thank you for the promise that if you resurrected, then we will resurrect with you. We look forward to that. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's stand.